Welcome to the 183rd episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our weekly look at NFL action, and our weekly look back at action in college basketball and the NBA. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. We will start in the NFL, where Patrick went 3-1 and one in his weekend predictions. Over to the NBA, Patrick went 2-2 two and two with his weekend predictions, and in college basketball, Patrick went 3-1 and one with his weekend predictions. So that brings his weekend total to 8-4 and four combined. That results in a 566-381 and 381 overall record, a 59.8% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your weekend predictions? Well, I stated last week that I wanted to make it to 600 wins before 400 losses, and that was a goal of mine. Um, so far, well, I would need to have a 64% winning percentage from here on out to get there. And this week I had a 67% winning percentage. So I'm on pace for it so far. Um, we'll see what happens when you throw bowl games and that crazy stuff into the scenario. And, uh, there's also a lot of, uh, interesting college basketball games that are going to happen next weekend. A lot of top 15 matchups, a lot of teams that are both really, really good playing each other. So it'll be, there will be some interesting matchups that are, Pretty hard to predict just based off of not really knowing much about these teams, but just knowing that they're some of the best. Um, in the same way that Alabama and Houston, I'll start there, was a struggle for me this weekend. I thought Houston was better than Alabama to a point that no matter how well they played, because they were at home, they were going to be able to win that game. Uh, but Alabama just outplayed Houston in the second half. They played a great second half, able to take advantage and win that game on the road. Uh, Houston had not been ranked number one since 1983. That run came to an end pretty quickly, and also, Houston had never played an AP Top 10 matchup on their own home court, um, and this was their first time doing it, so now they're 0-1 in Top 10 matchups at home all time, something that they might not get many more opportunities at just based off of how teams are kind of reluctant to schedule each other unless they're at neutral sites and they don't really know who they're playing, they're just playing in an invitational uh, and due to the fact that you never know how many times Houston's going to be top 10, I believe in their program for sure, but judging if if they already are top 10, scheduling another team that somehow ends up in that top 10 early in the in the non-conference schedule because they don't really have many teams in their conference schedule that are going to do it, um, you never know what's going to happen with that. Uh, although, I guess, wait, Houston is moving to the Big 12 though, aren't they? Yes. So, I okay, so I mean, they probably will have more AP top 10 matchups in the future, um, looking at Kansas especially, to pull the weight on that one. Probably Texas Tech as well. Maybe we'll see about that. Texas, um, Texas is going to the ASCC, though. Oh, so right. that, they'll be, that. they will be gone by the time they Baylor, get there. Baylor, but Baylor, Baylor, yeah, Baylor can do that, too. Um, and, you know, maybe teams will, be, will, will want to schedule them more now that they are a power conference team. I don't really think that should make a difference, but it might. Um, and then, speaking of teams in the Big 12, Iowa State lost... By a lot to Iowa. In fact, they lost by so much that Iowa opened up the game on a 15-0 run before Iowa State could even grab a rebound. That's right. Iowa had 15 points before Iowa State had one rebound in this game. It was over before 14 minutes were on the clock. Um, and, and Iowa continued their dominance throughout the game. Iowa State really never got it closer than maybe 17 or 18 um, set after that point, so it wasn't really close at all. Um, moving on to another matchup, number 10, Arizona, beat number 14, Indiana, 89-75, to 
And staying with that theme of Big Ten teams, number seven Tennessee beat number thirteen Maryland fifty-six to fifty-three. Moving on to the NBA, did a little bit of an emotional hedge. We all know I'm a Kings fan, which is very rare, but. I picked against the Kings in the hopes that if they won, I'd be kind of happy with it if they got a good road win over the Cavs. And if they lost, then, well, I would get a prediction right out of it. And, well, the Kings lost, so... I mean, sorry, the Kings won 106-95 on the road, so I got the prediction wrong. That was the loss I was referring to. Uh, But I was happy about the win. Uh, But moving on, then the Pelicans beat the Suns 128-117. That was a loss for me. Um, Funny thing about that is that the Pelicans actually played the Suns twice this weekend... And no matter which matchup I predicted, I would have been wrong because the Pelicans swept the Suns over the weekend and also launched a rivalry, but we're going to talk about that later. Uh, Then you had the Bucks who beat the Mavericks 106-105, to a last-minute alley-oop to Brooke Lopez with about five seconds, or two seconds left, actually. Um, And then the Luka Doncic miss uh, propelled the Bucks to that win, and then the Nuggets beat the Jazz 115-110. That was my final win in the NBA, so two and two there. And then in the NFL... The only game I got wrong was just the Dolphins just for some reason not showing up. I mean, this is the second week in a row that they've done that. Last week, obviously playing against Brock Purdy, you thought that up 7 to nothing after the first offensive play, and then by the time that Garoppolo was knocked out, you probably thought that was an easy win for the for the Dolphins. And in the end, the Niners actually came out with an easy win. I believe they won 33-17 to last week. And then this week, the Chargers, with basically no secondary... Playing against a team that has Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle, Tyree Kill possibly on pace to be one of the NFL's, I think actually the only NFL's uh, first 2,000-yard receiver, and yet still easy, easy game for the for the Chargers. They really did not have to work too hard in this game. Uh, we're able to pull out the victory pretty easily. The score is indicating that it was closer than it actually was. Um, then you had the Buccaneers who beat the the 49ers. I almost called them the 76ers. Um, that was, I mean, I'm sorry, the 49ers beat the Buccaneers. What am I talking about? Definitely not. <laughs> the Buccaneers definitely didn't beat the 49ers. Uh, and Brock Purdy's first career start, a great start where he completely outdueled Tom Brady. And before you say he has better weapons, no, he actually doesn't. Um, Tom Brady by far has better weapons than Brock Purdy does, but he just is not doing much with them. Maybe because you don't count offensive line in the weapons because Tom Brady's offensive line is pretty bad. Um, and the 49ers offensive line is pretty good, but good for Brock Purdy getting that first career start, uh, and that win, obviously in that first start, then the Bills beat the Jets in, uh, a really bad weather, but that's not really an excuse for the Jets lack of offense. We'll talk about that later and the Bills lack of offense, frankly. Um, and then the Eagles for the second week in a row, I picked their game because a lot of people for some reason don't believe in this team and the lines are really close on these games. And they keep playing these teams that they're easily going to beat, and I know that going in every week. But the line is close, and people are picking against the Eagles, so I just see it as an opportunity for me to pick up a free win in my predictions because I don't know how everybody doesn't know that they're going to win the games that they they win. I mean, they're so much better than the Giants. It's actually crazy that people thought that might have been a close game. It obviously wasn't. The Eagles won by 26, 48-22. An easy win for the end of my predictions in the NFL and the end of my predictions overall. Thank you, Patrick. His weekend predictions, as always will be posted on our website on Thursday. Weekend predictions for next weekend, of course. Let's move on to the NFL, uh, where we'll take a look back at Week 14 action, starting with the best games of Week 14. Well, I kind of talked about it, and that was it was an easy game for the Chargers. It wasn't technically easy. It was good. It was entertaining, for sure. Um, you know, part of the reason why this game should have been easier for the Chargers than it was, it was 0-0 zero to zero after the first quarter because the Chargers went for it on fourth and goal um, on the two-yard line, 
And I mentioned this talking to you about it later. They did go for two twice in this game on fourth and goal. Got it once, missed it the other time. In the end, seven to nothing versus six to nothing. Obviously, ignoring all the other points that were scored, but I don't necessarily think that uh, Brandon Staley's tendency to pretty much go for it on every single fourth down in the history of fourth downs is going to work out for them long term. It cost them in multiple games last year, uh, and as a seven and six team that's going to be playing in a tough environment in the AFC playoffs. They're going to lose a game to the Chiefs if they go for if they go for a fourth down every single time. The Chiefs are going to come up with a few stops, and that's going to be the end of their game and the end of their season. And I already know that, but I also I mean I don't even think that they're going to be able to hang with teams that much. But they they could, and I do think that that might cost them later. That's more of a philosophy thing, though. At least Staley, unlike la- I think there were points last year where people criticized him just because he didn't really lean into one identity. It really he, he was very very aggressive, and then once a few of those decisions didn't really work out. He stopped being aggressive. And then the question was, well, if you were aggressive at the beginning of the season, why aren't you aggressive at the end of the season? You need to stay the same. He has stayed consistent this year. They have gone for it, like I said, on every fourth down in the history of fourth down. Uh, So, you know, if the Chargers are going to keep being aggressive, I guess that's okay. It wouldn't be how I would coach a team, but I'm not an NFL head coach, and maybe that's for a reason. Uh, But I'll move on from that game. Good win for the Chargers still. Talk about the Panthers beating the Seahawks. Seahawks had no answers for the Panthers' run game. Uh, they just were able to run the game, to run the ball the entire game. No obstacles at all. Ten points in the first, second, and fourth quarter. I believe they had the ball with, I, I think, inside of the 10 at least, or at least inside of the 15, maybe inside of the 10, uh, at the end of the third quarter. So while it doesn't seem like, or while it seems like the Seahawks had one good quarter on defense, they really didn't. Uh, they, they also, I mean, the Panthers jumped out to a 10 to nothing lead very, very early on because they got a field goal on their opening drive and then Geno Smith threw an interception that the Panthers then turned into a touchdown right after. Uh, But still, despite that 10-0 lead, the Seahawks were able to make it, uh, yeah, 20-14 at the half and then 20-17 going into the fourth quarter. It was still a close game. Uh, Then you have, speaking of comebacks, the Chiefs went up 27-0 on the Broncos. But then as Patrick Mahomes threw three interceptions, they kind of let the Broncos back into the game to the point where they had to actually run out the clock organically at the end of the game rather than the game just being a done deal. Uh, but the Broncos still coming up short after making it close at the half and then actually making it a one-possession game in the third quarter and then again in the fourth quarter. Chiefs still win 34-28 to on the road. Then you have the Ravens who went on the road against the Steelers without Tyler Huntley playing. Um, both teams actually, if you combine how many quarterbacks they had used uh, over the course of the year, they were on their fourth quarterback because, or fourth quarterback combined because actually Kenny Pickett got knocked out of this game in the first few dri- within the first few drives and Mitch Trubisky had to come in and play instead. I mean, obviously Lamar Jackson was not playing for the Ravens because he was injured, uh, but the Ravens ended up pulling out the victory 16-14, uh, a fourth quarter uh, field goal, kind of sealed the deal, it put it out of reach, it made it 16-7, to and then in the end, the Steelers ended up getting one touchdown to make it closer, but they didn't get the onside kick, and that was pretty much the end of the game uh, once they couldn't stop the Ravens from getting a first down while running the ball to try to run out the clock. Then you have the Cowboys, who, um, look, I want to cement this team as a top-two team in the NFC very, very badly. Every week, it feels like you have the opportunity to do it. They go out and they dominate the Giants. They go out and they dominate the Vikings, whatever it is. But then the next week, they always just do something that's not... It just doesn't make sense for a team who's supposed to be top two in the NFC. 
they almost lost to the Texans this weekend. The Texans are 1-11-1 after their loss this weekend. They were playing multiple quarterbacks in the same game like they were 2021 Michigan or something, and Jeff Driscoll and Davis Mills almost beat Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. It took a touchdown with 45 seconds left on third and goal from the two for the Cowboys to win this game. They were losing 23-20 to heading into the fourth quarter. The Texans went for it on, I, I think, yeah, on fourth and goal from the Cowboys' two-yard line. Had they kicked a field goal, yeah, it would have been 26-20, to so the Cowboys still would have won the game with a touchdown. But just the fact that this game came down to them actually having to make a goal-line stand uh, in the fourth quarter and then having to go down the field and convert in the two-minute drill, it, it just, it's just something that top teams really don't allow to happen. I'm not saying that the Cowboys now aren't top team because of just this one week because, I mean, hey, the Chiefs failed to close out the Broncos, too. The Broncos are a little bit better than the Texans, and Russell Wilson, despite a down year, is still way better than Davis Mills and Jeff Driscoll. Um, but, look, there are a lot of teams that are maybe struggling a little bit. It's not necessarily the quote-unquote dog days of the season like there is in the MLB. I think the NFL has a short enough season that that's not really a thing at all. Uh, but if there were to be a part of the season that's the dog days, it could, you could argue it could be now right before... People are in playoff clinching scenarios, but right after kind of the middle of the season where you maybe have some trades that energize your team. The Cowboys just looked down in this game, and I don't really understand how they have how they kept that game that close, or, or I guess let that game stay that close is probably a better word uh, to use. And then finally, I think this was the best game of the week. I don't know if you would agree with me or not, uh, but the Raiders, well, best game from... Uh, uh, most entertaining. Most, most entertaining. Ending and outcome. Yeah, most entertaining ending, most entertaining outcome. Definitely by far the best storylines. Uh, Baker Mayfield comes in. He practices two days. He probably barely knows the plays. You hear people in the NFL talk about the jargon that different teams use. Uh, if there were ever to be a team that has confusing wording, I would assume it would be the team that has Sean McVay as the head coach. But Baker Mayfield learns that playbook in two days. Probably didn't learn the full playbook. Didn't really look like the Rams were running anything too crazy this week or on Thursday. But down 16-3 in the fourth quarter with less than three, with less than four minutes left, the Rams are able to score two touchdowns. Uh, and Or sorry, not with four minutes, not with less than four minutes left. They were down by 13, but we'll get to the whole scenario later. D- down by that much heading into the fourth, or in the middle of the fourth quarter, down 13-3 and at the half if you want to go there as well. Uh, the Rams were able to go down the field in 98 Sorry, in 98 yards, about in 98 seconds, actually pretty close to that. I think it was 146 or something was the total drive time. Baker Mayfield, no timeouts, led a 98-yard game-winning drive with just two days of uh, working with the playbook for the Rams. And, I mean, for a team that's out of playoff contention, it obviously doesn't mean anything. Technically, the Rams aren't mathematically eliminated, but they will be when they lose at Lambeau on Monday because that will happen. Uh, But, look... It's still a good win. It's a good showing out uh, for Baker. I mean, you know, you get released from the Panthers who chose other players that are named P.J. Walker and Sam Darnold over you. That could be career-ending. Maybe not career-ending, but he was looking like he was surely going to be a backup for a long time. Now maybe he kind of plays more of that uh, Tyrod Taylor role, that Jacoby Brissett role, that... My quarterback suspended for six weeks, so we need someone who can actually win a few games. He, I think he's at least now put himself ahead of the backups, the career backups, like 
you know, those kinds of guys and, and have kind of graduated back up into at least the, this guy can win you a few games and, and kind of, you know, hold you over like a little snack before you actually go to eat your dinner kind of a thing. I, I really feel like that's where Baker is at right now. I don't think that he's an NFL starter. I think he's proven that because of how bad the Panthers have been. And now the fact that they're now one game out of the division lead now that Sam Darnold has come back, it's not the fact that the Panthers have come back and are closer to the division now that Baker is gone. It's the fact that the guy who replaced him is Sam Darnold, who was cast away from the Jets of all teams. I mean, you get the point here that, you know, the situations he's been cast away from do not prove that he's, you know, getting cast away because he can't win huge, huge games. I mean, that was kind of the problem with the Browns. But with the Panthers, the proof is that you just can't win at all. I mean, if you're not, if you're, if you can make it to the Panthers, you just, you can't play. I mean, that, that, that theoretically is what's going on. But now showing out like that on a Thursday night, yes, the Raiders aren't having a great season, way under expectations. But with how down the Rams should be mentally, with how bad this season has gone and how many weapons they are they are missing, no Cooper Cup, it really does feel like that was a partial, maybe career rejuvenating win. Maybe that doesn't give him, he, he's not going to start for the Rams next year. He's not going to challenge Matt Stafford. That I don't think any of that is going to happen. But maybe it causes a team to kind of overlook, you know, the Panthers, the debacle that was his season with the Panthers and kind of look back to his few good seasons with the Browns and then maybe the end of this year and say, you know what, we can have him for a few years and he can kind of hold us over to getting into a new era with a better quarterback. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I really do think that that win was actually probably the biggest win of his career. Yeah, or maybe just signs as a backup with the Rams knowing Stafford is old and injury prone. But um, crazy ending to that game. Uh, Crazy unpredictable. Uh, So you got an impressive castaway free agent, most impressive Castaway free agent of the week. Let's move to the most impressive teams of the week. Well, speaking of a team that normally has a holdaway quarterback that's kind of just holding them over until they draft one, the Lions and former Rams quarterback Jared Goff beat the 10-3 Vikings 34-23. Um, if we had an upset category, this actually still wouldn't go oh, yeah. on there because the Lions were favored. The reason why the Lions were favored, in case people were questioning why a 5-7 team was favored over a 10-2 team, the Vikings now, after that loss, and you know they didn't really get they didn't get destroyed or anything. Um, they lost thirty four to twenty three. The Vikings have a negative point differential with ten wins. They are the only team out of two hundred and fifty plus teams to have a negative point differential and be ten and three or better this far into a season. It's crazy. It's not supposed to happen. If you, it's like an MLB team. It's like the Mariners two years ago to use a baseball analogy, who had a minus 79 run difference or something like that, or minus 50, and they were contending for a wild card spot up until the last day of the season. But the difference is they didn't come, they didn't, they didn't actually get that playoff spot. The Vikings are going to make the playoffs and they're going to make it pretty comfortably. They're going to win a division. Seattle didn't come anywhere close to that. They just kind of threatened for a wild card spot. The Vikings aren't threatening for a wild card spot. They are going to win a division, which is crazy because... They really just aren't, I mean, I think, look, the Bills iced away the game against the Vikings, and the Vikings got that win. I think if they're 9-4, and four, maybe it's easier to kind of see through, I guess you could call it smoke and mirrors. I don't really want to use that phrase, because I do feel like they're, they are a good team, I just don't think they're a great team. Um, I think you could see through it a lot easier if they were 9-4 and four and had that loss against the Bills, but because they had that season-defining win where they were able to stop Josh Allen, they were able to force that miracle turnover and all that stuff, 
people are kind of overrating them because of that, but I guess Vegas didn't overrate them because they still had them as two-point underdogs to the Lions. Uh, but look, I'm impressed with the Lions. They're going to make a push for the playoffs. We're just going to have to see how that turns out. I, I ran through the scenarios with you before. If they go 2-2, two and two, they're pretty much out. They need some major help if they do. But if they're able to go 3-1 and one by winning a game either against the Jets, who are also in that kind of race for the playoffs, or against the Packers, who maybe they're not supposed to beat, and then, you know, just win the other ones that are kind of easier games, then, including the Bears, you have the Lions making the playoffs. I mean, that, that would happen in that scenario. Uh, but speaking of teams that, well, aren't making a... Well, I'll speak of one team that is making a playoff push. The Titans, they lost to the Jaguars 36-22. to I don't have much on this game in terms of what was impressive uh, by the Jaguars as a team. I guess their defense forced a few turnovers, which was pretty important. The Titans played a pretty sloppy game. But I will say one thing about the Jaguars. Trevor Lawrence is looking like Trevor Lawrence that we thought would be in the NFL. His stats are kind of still in the middle of the league everywhere. He's But the one thing that I, I would say is a positive with him is that he doesn't really have any stats where he's, you know, in the 20s and he's kind of in, he's at least in the 10 to 15 range and kind of everything in yards and touchdowns. Uh, he doesn't have, he has half the amount of interceptions thrown as Patrick Mahomes. He has only six interceptions on the season. So he's taking care of the ball better if you exclude that uh, that four fumble game that he had. Uh, but he's taking care of some of the turnover issues. I still think that Christian Kirk is not necessarily a, a bona fide number one receiver. So I think that they could get him some more help. I think that's possible. Uh, but I really could see the Jaguars being a team that maybe one, two years from now is at least challenging for a wild card, if not challenging for this weak division, because the Texans aren't going anywhere anytime soon, and they're already starting to catch up to the Titans. I mean, it's only five and eight versus seven and six in terms of record differential uh, right now. So I really think they do have a chance in this division. And the Colts obviously have been having bad seasons for a few years in a row now. They spoiled the Colts from making the playoffs last year, actually. So I could see them easily catching up to the Titans in this division. Very impressed with Trevor Lawrence this weekend, but I'll move on from that. I actually talked about this already, so I won't talk about it too much. But look, the Eagles are just really good. I mean, they deserve to be 12-1. and This is... Some people kind of maybe drew some comparisons to the Vikings and said they're not they're not an ideal 11-1 team. They're not that dominant. I really do truly believe that this Eagles team is that dominant. We're not talking about Jalen Hurts in the MVP discussion just because the team is 11-1. We're talking about him in the MVP discussion because he's played at an MVP level this season, and he deserves to be in that conversation. The reason why the Eagles are so good is because they have an MVP-level quarterback. They have a top, arguably, maybe top five receiver in the league. I think you could put A.J. Brown in that category. They have a great offensive line. They have a great running game, which is kind of spearheaded by the fact that their quarterback is probably the best running quarterback in the league, maybe. Uh, if it's not him, it's, it can only be Lamar Jackson. I mean, that's the only guy you could put above him. Um, and then they also have a top 10 defense which is very, very important. They put up seven sacks this weekend against the Giants. They know how to rush the passer, and that is what's very, very important. They have a very good combo of rushing the passer, and also they have Darius Slay, a very good number one corner, one of the top corners in the league. So they have kind of both ends of it. They're able to pressure the quarterback, and also they're able to cover well enough that they can generate some pressure sacks as well. So the Eagles just are really a, a, a complete package as a team. And they've kind of, they, they fixed some of their issues with their interior defensive linemen. That was kind of the one um, hole that they have. But they signed Linval Joseph. They signed Ndamukong Sue. They're trying to patch that up. And I think they've done a pretty good job so far. So I am heavy on the Eagles train. I believe that 12-1 and is where they should be. And then, frankly, they could be 13-0. and 
But here's a team who is way better than the record indicates. The 49ers at 9-4. and four. I think that the 49ers are up there with the Eagles for the best team in the NFC. I would personally put them above the Cowboys. I would easily put them above the Vikings right now. Um, they won 35-7 against the Buccaneers, who are towards the bottom of that ranking. Lucky to be a division winner uh, as it stands. Probably going to win that division because their competition is Carolina. But um, look, 49ers came out dominated this weekend. Uh, we talked about it already, but Brock Purdy had a great weekend. And uh, really, the only question would be, can he keep it up? Because if Brock Purdy is able to play this level every week, I don't see why they're not at least the second best team in the NFC. If not, I'm not willing to go out and say it because I like the Eagles, but you could make the argument that if Brock Purdy is able to play like this, he's playing at a higher level than Jimmy Garoppolo ever played at. And with Jimmy Garoppolo, they were still able to make the Super Bowl and the NFC Championship game, obviously two years ago and then last year, or I guess three years ago, I think. Um, So I don't really see why he can't take them to the Super Bowl if he's able to keep playing at this level. The question is, can he keep playing at this level, or were the Dolphins somehow unprepared for a quarterback with slightly more talent than Jimmy Garoppolo, and were the Buccaneers just reeling by the fact that their offense cannot stay on the field for uh, whatever reason, despite having Tom Brady, uh, Leonard Fournette, and Chris Godwin, and Mike Evans, and all those guys. Um, and then finally, speaking of Tom Brady, his former team has finally surpassed his current team. The Patriots are now 7-6 and six on the season after beating the Cardinals 27-13, Obviously, the biggest storyline of the weekend with that was that uh, Kyler Murray tore his ACL. He might not be back until late last season, which means that the Cardinals kind of wasted this season with some injuries, DeAndre Hopkins suspension, and just not playing well. And it looks like next year they will be without their quarterback for a little bit too. I mean, we've seen that Odell tore his ACL in the Super Bowl and is still targeting a January, mid-January return, which is almost a year full of rehab. If if Kyler Murray is going to take a year to get back, they're already going to be 3-8, and 3-9 and nine again, and they're not going to want to bring him back at that point. Uh, so we'll see what happens there with the Cardinals. But for now, I was impressed with the Patriots' defense, how they adapted, and just after really a, a kind of a slow start in the first half, giving up 13 points all in the second quarter as well, they gave up nothing in the second half. In fact, they scored points. Um, so the Patriots' defense was very, very impressive for me. And something that I forgot to mention, the Eagles became the first team to clinch a playoff spot this weekend after their win. All right, that wraps up our look back at the NFL. Let's turn our attention to the NBA, starting, as always, Patrick, with your three most impressive teams of the past week. Well, I will start with the Brooklyn Nets. They had a great week as they beat Washington, Indiana, Atlanta, and Charlotte. Okay, Charlotte's not that good. But the Nets have started to put it all together. I really believe that at 17-12, and 12, I still think they can compete for a top seed in the East Uh, without having to go on some crazy miracle run at the end of the season. I really think that they're getting there. You're starting to see kind of the star power coalesce and play well with each other. Uh, Moving on from them, probably maybe could go higher on this list, could be number one. The Pelicans, they are 3-0. They beat beat Phoenix twice, which we talked about. Um, That was a a little bit of a start of a rivalry. Zion kind of dunked in garbage time, and that almost... (laughs) It got... Well... To say the least, it got Phoenix mad, uh, but Phoenix wasn't mad enough because they ended up losing in overtime playing the Pelicans again on Sunday, uh, and then the Pelicans also had a win over Detroit this week, but importantly, more importantly, I should say, the Pelicans have now won seven games in a row, and with an 18-8 and record and beating the Suns twice, they now own first place in, we- in the Western Conference. 
They also managed to start that rivalry with the Suns. And then finally, going back to the Eastern Conference, back to the back to the city of New York, actually, the Knicks. They went 3-0 this week. They beat a good Sacramento team. They also beat Charlotte, and they beat Atlanta, who had a rough week, but partially that was because of the Knicks. They're currently in sixth place in the Eastern Conference after a four-game winning streak and this undefeated week. They are looking like the team I thought they would be last year, where I thought that they'd end up fourth or fifth uh, in the Eastern Conference and easily be able to make the playoffs and avoid the play, and they're starting to look more like that team rather than whatever you want to call their look of last year. Okay, let's move on to the most disappointing teams of the past week in the NBA. I will start with those Suns that I talked about a few times already. They went 0-4 this week. It started off with a loss against New Orleans. They also lost to New Orleans again, or actually this is, I guess, going in backwards order. And they lost to the Celtics earlier in the week as well. Uh, so the Suns just really on a, uh, a bad streak here. Um, actually, I forgot to mention another game. They also lost to the Mavericks this week. So they lost all four games this week. Um, spoiler alert, we're not talking about Tuesday games, but they also did lose to the Rockets um, tonight. So now they've lost five games in a row, if you include today. So just really a bad, bad, bad streak of games uh, for the Suns. Uh, so, you know, it's just not something that you want to see. They're playing horribly, and uh, that's all I got about them. Then you have the Hawks, who went 1-4 this week. They lost to Memphis, Brooklyn, New York, and Oklahoma City. They won, but only against Chicago in overtime. It required a miracle uh, by A.J. Griffin, a rookie, to avoid an 0-5 week. They still dipped to an even 14-14 on the season, so just not looking good for the Hawks. And then finally, the Lakers, they lost to Philadelphia, they lost to Toronto, and they lost to Cleveland. They beat Detroit, and that was how they narrowly avoided a winless week. Even that game was close, though. Uh, but after catching fire for a few weeks, they've just gone ice cold again. They're now 11-15 and with a matchup against Celtics tonight, who have the best record in the league, and we'll see how that one goes. Um, so, look... I don't like to dwell on the negatives, so I kind of sped through the disappointing teams, but it's seeming to be a theme that some of these teams uh, keep showing up on here, although the Nets finally put themselves on the good list instead of the bad list. Yeah, getting near Christmas time, naughty and nice lists. All right, let's go to the NBA Player of the Week list. Well, on the for, for the Player of the Week, I'm giving it to Joel Embiid. There were many, many worthy candidates, including Damian Lillard. He had a great week. He actually had a game where he hit 11 three-pointers, uh, but Joel Embiid... Uh, he had he averaged 43.3 points per game, 10.3 rebounds, and 3.7 assists uh, per game as the 76ers went 2-1 and one on the week. So a good week for the Sixers, a decent week, um, and a great week for Joel Embiid. Okay, let's shift gears from NBA basketball to college basketball action, starting with rank-shifting wins of the week. Well, I gave the first one to Illinois, beating number two Texas, 85-78 to in overtime. Funny thing is, Illinois really did not move much in the rankings after this, uh, even though they were supposed to, and we'll talk about why they didn't later on, and I have a whole separate piece on that. Uh, but Texas did move down, and then actually got even worse news later in the week, because it has been announced that Chris Beard got arrested, um, for domestic violence, uh, or for domestic violence and alleged domestic violence charge, I should say, I guess. Um, but he's suspended. He won't be coaching for a while, and in their first game, I'll talk about it later, they didn't really play too well against a really bad team, and I'll get to that in a second. They played their second overtime game in a row, but not as exciting as going to overtime with Illinois uh, when you go to overtime with Rice, which I'll talk about later. Uh, but then Wisconsin beat number 13, Maryland, 64-59. to uh, Wisconsin looking pretty good on the season, just kind of similar to their start last year. I really think this is going to be 
another normal Wisconsin season where for, what is it at this point, like the 18th of the, the 18th year out of 19 or 20 years that they're top four in the Big Ten as a seed, but do absolutely nothing in the NCAA tournament. So when everybody picks them to go to the Final Four, to go to the Elite Eight, I will be very happy when they lose in the Sweet 16 to whatever 11 seed comes out of nowhere and makes an upset. It'll happen again, just like it happened last year with Iowa State. I don't think they're going to get to a, a three seed this year. I don't think they're quite that good. And I don't really think there are any teams outside of Purdue that are that good in the Big Ten. And I'm not even so convinced on Purdue yet, honestly, myself, yet. Uh, they could still convince me soon, but not so far uh, have they done that. But Wisconsin already putting together a pretty good resume. Uh, it's coming together well. The metrics, some of them don't like them, some of them do. It's kind of, they're, they're a mixed bag there. Uh, but Maryland also having a good season. That was their first loss of the year, actually. Uh, then you have Iowa, who beat number 20, Iowa State, 75-56. I already talked about that one. Arizona beat Indiana. I talked about that one. Number five, UConn beat 75, beat, sorry, not beat 75-54, beat Florida 75-54. I would like to talk about this team for a second. This is the best team in the country, and I'm 100% convinced of that. I don't want anybody to tell me otherwise. I truly believe that there is no team that can contend with UConn because, look, Purdue, we thought they had that hole in terms of guard play, um, and it was just going to be relying on Fletcher Lawyer to kind of fill in that gap. He has filled in that gap very, very well. But UConn, it really felt like they were missing a lot from last year. But Adama Sinogo has been just enough uh, to kind of deal with those losses. And then Donovan Klingon has come out of nowhere. The 7-2 freshman uh, from Bristol, Connecticut, averaging 10.5 points, 7 rebounds on the season on 75% shooting. Sinogo averaging... 18.3 points per game. If he was averaging 81 points per game, that would be insane. Uh, He's averaging 18.3 points per game, 6.6 rebounds on 62% shooting. So between their two centers, you have over 28 points and you have over, uh, you have almost 14 rebounds per game. They have those two solid centers that can play with anybody in the country and their guards are still really good uh, as well. Uh, Jordan Hawkins being kind of the main guy as a sophomore who had a good, uh, who had a good freshman season, but kind of stepped up, is now stepping up this season. Naheem Aline has not even played that well. Um, and Hassan Diara, both of those guys from the transfer portal, have not really needed to play well so far. They haven't, uh, but they'll step up as the season goes along. Andre Jackson Jr. was a pretty important part of last year's team. Um, and he has he's averaging 6-6-5 six, six, and five on the year, which is pretty good across the board, but hasn't really hit his full stride yet. They're a deep team, and they are a really good team, and I expect them to contend for a title. Last year, when they were a five seed, I had them going pretty far. They disappointed me by losing to New Mexico State in the first round of the tournament. Uh, But at the same time, I I still believe in the talent they have from last year carrying over to this year, plus adding on these few guys that have kind of come out of nowhere and stepped it up for them. It's a very good sign uh, for them, and I really do believe in the talent of this UConn team. Another guy who I forgot to mention is Tristan Newton, a transfer from Eastern Carolina who averaged 18 points and five assists per game and five rebounds per game last year on East Carolina, now averaging 10-4-4 for UConn. And then finally, you have number six, Kansas, who beat Missouri 95-67. This really didn't do anything for Kansas' ranking, other than me watching them for the first time this season, like, intently and seeing, wow, this team is really, really good as well. (laughs) This team is also up there with the UConns, with the Purdue's, for sure, as the contenders. Um, But Missouri could have been ranked just by keeping it close, uh, because they were one of the final eight unbeaten teams left in the country. I really believe that if they were 9-1 and one with this loss being a close loss, people would have realized that, okay, 
They're not 9-0 because they played a weak schedule. They weren't 9-0 because they played a weak schedule. They're 9-0 because they're good and they played a weak schedule. And then a close loss would have meant that, you know, while playing a weak schedule, they also had some close games in there with a good team. But instead, Kansas won the border war in very convincing fashion. All right, let's move on to close games of last week in college basketball. This one wasn't so close, but I felt like mentioning it because it became a quality win after Iowa bounced back from this loss and beat Iowa State without their leading scorer, Chris Murray. I forgot to mention that about that whole game in the first place. Uh, but number 15, Duke beat Iowa 74-62. to It was also on a neutral court, so this was this was a good showing for Duke, honestly. It was not... I, I don't think this team is quite as much of a championship contender as maybe they could be, but it was still a good showing earlier in early in the year for a good win. Uh, the next two are not good showings. Number three, Virginia beat James Madison 55-50. to James Madison is trending towards maybe being a bubble team. Uh, they're kind of in the consideration part. Not really in my consideration, to be quite honest. But they're trending that way. Uh, and then, you know, you just can't... I just don't like how Virginia keeps winning close games against teams that they're supposed to be way better than. Out of the top five teams, I think this is... Virginia is by far the one that I'm the least convinced of. Uh, I've said that I think Purdue still has their fair share of issues, but... Purdue does not have nearly as many issues as I think Virginia has. I just don't see... They haven't had really premier scoring all year, and yes, they play a slow style. They play that defensive, patented Tony Bennett defensive style, but they've also kept it close, and they've also let some teams score on them, so I'm really not too convinced of what their identity is yet. I think they can figure it out, and I think they will be good, but I don't think they're a top-five team long-term this season. I could still be proven wrong, though, uh, and they still haven't lost a game yet, so I mean, I guess... You know, the proof is in the pudding for some people. Uh, but for now, still putting UConn, still putting Purdue. I still even like Kansas over that Virginia team uh, and Houston as well. But then, speaking of a team who I thought could join that category but didn't, number nine, Arkansas beat UNC Greensboro 65-58. to They were trailing throughout pretty much this entire game. So I don't like uh, that from Arkansas. They just did not play well in this game. I mean, it's pretty simple. Uh, it's just not It's just not what you want to see from Arkansas. Um, and then number 25, Ohio State beat Rutgers 67 to 66. Ohio State hit a buzzer beater that technically shouldn't have counted uh, a three to win the game after a missed free throw by Rutgers. Technically shouldn't have counted because the guy uh, jumped in from out of bounds and was the first guy to touch it without it reestablishing himself. Yes, there is an illegal touching rule in basketball, just like the one in football. Uh, so I, I, that, that shouldn't have counted, but nonetheless, it did count. That's too bad for Rutgers. It's a good win for Ohio State. Uh, then moving on from that, number four, Purdue beat Nebraska 65-62 to 62, uh, in overtime. Nebraska is not a very good team, so this is one of the reasons why I'm not very convinced with Purdue, because I don't think many teams are only beating Nebraska by three in overtime. I mean, that's just not something that really, really good teams will do, but we'll see. Maybe Nebraska does pull out a miraculous season. They had a good upset win over Creighton, but then Creighton started to look poor, so I don't really know how important that win ends up being by the end of the year. Uh, but I'll move on from that. Number nine, Arkansas beat Oklahoma 88 to 78. Oklahoma seems like a borderline bubble tournament team. They're trying to they're trying to get into that range, which they probably will stay in. Um, then number 16, Kentucky beat Yale 69 to 59. I mentioned this game for one reason. Put it on the board that on December 13th, I said Yale could be an interesting team in March if they're able to win the Ivy League and get that auto bid. If they get into 13 or at a 12, which is where I have them predicted, if you want to pick a 5 over 12 upset, or sorry, a 12 over 5 upset, I would put Yale as that team. They almost beat Purdue last year, actually. They kept that game pretty close for a while. I think Purdue ended up winning by a final score that wasn't really indicative of how close the game was. 
Uh, but Yale almost pulled off that upset last year before Purdue made it all the way to the Sweet 16, only to get beaten by uh, St. Peter's, uh, but in that odd tournament that was last year. Uh, but I really think that Yale could be a team that upsets, that pulls off at least a first-round upset as a 13 or a 12 seed. We've seen Ivy League teams do it in the past. Uh, Harvard was one of them for sure. Um, I really think Yale could pull off that upset, and I'll move on from that. Number 7, Tennessee, beat number 13, Maryland, 56-53. to uh, Tennessee was in firm control of this game. Maryland only made three shots from the field in the entire first half, but Tennessee just kind of failed to put Maryland away. They just didn't do enough to kind of close that game out early, and in the end, it got too close, and Maryland really, really threatened them by the end of the game, closing it down to just a three-point game in the end. Uh, and then finally... I said I was going to talk about Texas going to Rice, uh, or sorry, not going to Rice, going to overtime with Rice. Uh, they only won by six in overtime over Rice after that Chris Beard news. Not a very good showing from Texas. Maybe a little bit distracted. We'll see if they can kind of refocus. Uh, but you would think that the Illinois loss was enough motivation to kind of refocus them already, but it wasn't in this game. Maybe because they were refocused, but then they were unfocused. I don't really know what's going on. Uh, it, it's hard to tell. We'll see what happens with Chris Beard. I would anticipate that he probably won't be the coach going forward, but we'll see what happens there. Um, and Texas will have to learn how to play without him if he isn't the coach indeed. Uh, and then finally, I said finally twice because I forgot about this game, New Mexico. They beat San Francisco 67-64. They are one of seven remaining unbeaten teams in all of college basketball. They went from completely off my radar to the highest ranked 11 seed in the tournament in just one week after I took a look at their at that time, pretty weak, but it, it, the resume was there. Um, and they will, be, they will be receiving a uh, significant promotion this week after they continued to go undefeated and kind of got this one, which is, it, it won't be a signature win of a top team's resume, but for an eight or a nine seed, a win over San Francisco is a signature win this early in the season. Um, and also the release of the net rankings, which ranks them pretty favorably as well as some other metrics. So I'm going with New Mexico there. Just wanted to mention that because also they are getting upgraded in my bracket for sure, they will no longer be on the bubble, I can guarantee you that. Okay, let's move to some upsets from last week. Well, number eight, Alabama beat number one, Houston. I talked about this in my weekend prediction, so I'll move on. Uh, Penn State beat number 17, Illinois, 74-59. to This is where I'm going to talk about Illinois. Illinois has not won consecutive games over major conference opponents this entire season. When they, be when they beat UCLA a few weeks back, they lost to Virginia the next day. When they beat Syracuse, who's not really that good this season anyway... They lost to Maryland later in that week. And then finally this week, after getting that huge win over number two Texas, they come back home and inexplicably lose to Penn State by 15. I just don't, I don't see, uh, this team cannot win the Big Ten. I will say that. That is my main takeaway from this week. It's just such a gauntlet. And I don't think that if you can't follow up a win over Texas with a win over Penn State at home, I don't know how you're going to follow up a, let's say a win over Michigan at home and go on the road and then beat Rutgers. I just don't see how they're going to be able to do things like that that you need to do in the Big Ten to win the conference. They're already 0-2 and they still have seven games left against ranked opponents. If they were to go 4-5 and five in those games, they'd have seven losses. No team is winning that conference at seven losses. Purdue's not going to have seven losses. I don't think Maryland's going to have seven losses in conference. I don't even think Wisconsin's going to have seven losses in conference. So, they're going to at least need to go 5-2 and two or something over ranked teams and not lose to unranked teams all year long if they want to win the conference. And it's pretty early to already bury a team in terms of uh, their conference standing. But just this loss to Penn State is not a loss you want to take. Penn State is consistently a bottom-of-the-conference team. 
So to take that loss at home, especially by 15 in that convincing of a fashion, especially coming off the fact that Penn State had just lost to Michigan State at home, who hasn't beaten anybody. They lost to Northwestern. They, they, I mean, they've beaten Brown in the last few weeks, but that's about all they can muster up. So look, it's not like Penn State is a great team that kind of pulled off a shocker. Penn State really is a borderline tournament team at best. That's just a loss you cannot take if you're Illinois. And then finally, BYU beat number 21 Creighton, 83 to 80. This was the biggest upset of the week where Creighton lost, but it wasn't the only one, uh, and more about that later. And then St. Mary's beat number 21 San Diego State, 68 to 61. And then Memphis beat previously unbeaten number 11 Auburn, 82 to 73, and they will go for a state of Alabama sweep tonight against number four Alabama on the road. Fun fact, last season, Alabama played a Memphis team when they were 8-1 and one on the season. They proceeded to lose that game and go 11-13 and 13 for the rest of the season. This year, Alabama is... 8-1 on the season, playing Memphis. So we'll see what happens with them this season if uh, that Houston win cursed them now that they're playing Memphis. And uh, to throw it in, the last thing that I was going to talk about is that Arizona State was able to pull off an upset by beating Creighton, which now puts Creighton at five straight losses and five losses on the year. And puts Arizona State in pretty good shape. Yeah, Arizona State is a 10-1 team looking like they have at least a little bit of a strong resume. If you read my article critiquing the conferences and what the Pac-12 needed to become kind of one of the better uh, major conferences this season. I said somebody in the middle of the conference needed to step up and go in behind UCLA and Arizona and Oregon and kind of hold up the mantle of being a good team behind those teams because they really didn't have much depth. First of all, Oregon hasn't had a good season, but Arizona State and Utah have kind of held down that middle of the conference as maybe the fourth and fifth tournament teams while USC kind of struggles. Okay, that wraps up our look back at college basketball for the week. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Tuesday, December 20th, where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions, have our weekly look at NBA and college basketball action, and pick up our college football discussion again with the start of bowl season picking up next weekend. Uh, We'll also discuss week 15 of the NFL. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his predictions for every college football bowl game that were posted last week, his NCAA basketball tournament bracket that will be updated on Wednesday, and his picks for next weekend's games that will be posted, as always, on Thursday. All that content on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.